All right, that's it for announcements. That gave you plenty of time to find 2 Thessalonians. So let's read chapter 3, verses 14 through 16 together. I'm sorry, verses 14 through 18. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed, yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This concludes Paul's letters to the Thessalonians that have been preserved in Scripture. Would you pray with me as we look at this together? Father, we come to your word humbly. You are eternal. We are not. You are all-knowing. We are so finite in our understanding. God, speak to us that we might know what is true, that we might desire to obey you. Give us clarity of thought as we look at your word. Holy Spirit, help us to understand these precious truths. Jesus, may we, as we prepare our hearts for communion by getting into your word, may we adore the work that you have done on the cross even more as a result of our time together here today. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to make three statements, observations, if you will, from this passage. And so on the way in, you may have received a handout. Um, If you did not get that, I apologize. But if you have that, I invite you to turn over and look at the back of that. You'll see outlined there three things that we want to talk about today from these final words of 2 Thessalonians. The first fill-in-the-blank that you'll see there is this. The Bible is a reliable record of God's Word. It is a reliable record of God's Word. If, if what we're going to do today is to have any value whatsoever, we must start with a conviction that what we are reading is the inspired and preserved and reliable Word of God. If, if this is just some random letter written 2,000 years ago to people that we have you know, really virtually no connection to, then it is of little value. However, if this is a reliable record of God's self-revelation through His Word, then we come to this text very seriously. And we come to this text with a different mindset. And so I, first of all, want to make the case that the Bible is a reliable record of God's Word. I'm pulling this from verse 17. Now, if you come here every week, you know that normally we take a passage of Scripture. Well, we start with a book, one of the the books of the Bible, and we, we, we go through it passage by passage, and we normally go from the beginning of that passage to the end. But I'm going to start towards the end of this passage. If we look back at verse 17, it says this, I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. What's he talking about? Well, if you you just, you know, think about it a little bit, this originally came to them as a personal letter. That was not uncommon at all 
for letters to be written through the, the handwriting of someone else. It, it was not uncommon at all for Paul to sit or any, anybody else writing a letter at that time to sit and to dictate to somebody who has been hired or somebody who has been recruited to record their words. We don't do that a lot today. Normally, if you're going to write a letter to somebody, unless you're somebody very prestigious or somebody with a lot of resources, you normally sit down and write your own letters, if you write letters at all. But, but Paul would often use somebody else to write his letters, and he would dictate to them. But he would do something unique at the end of those letters to, to let them know that this was indeed coming from Paul. And he would, he would sign off in his own handwriting. And, he, and in this instance, as well as a, a couple of other instances, he points this out to them. I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. See how this is written? That's how you know it's me. If you get a letter from, some, from somebody claiming to be me and it doesn't look like this, oh my goodness. I'll tell you what, I know. I know, I love that air blowing, but maybe not that much, huh? <laughs> if, you see, if you see a letter written and it doesn't look like what Paul has, has written in this letter, then that's how you know somebody is imitating Paul. And that would happen. There were, because of, of, you know, just some of the challenges of communicating at that time, it was easy for somebody to sort of falsify a letter and say that this was coming from Paul. That's one of the things that he addresses in earlier in 1 Thessalonians. You've been told by other people that the resurrection has already happened and all of these things. So, so Paul has to have a way to say, this is, this is from me. It's me. It's Paul the apostle of the Lord Jesus. Now, why does that matter? Who cares if it's from Paul or from somebody else? Well, the way that God ordained for Scripture to work is that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he called men to himself to be apostles. And he taught them, and he sent them, as we looked in the Gospel of John a few months ago, he sent them the Holy Spirit after his resurrection and his ascension. He sent them his Holy Spirit to one, bring to remembrance what he taught them, and two, to inspire them to pass on the message of the gospel through their teaching, through the writing of these letters and gospel accounts and historical accounts. He inspires them by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, that Scripture comes from God himself through human authors, and that, whole, that same Holy Spirit validated their authority in the first century through signs and wonders. And then those words have been preserved in what some of you are holding in your hand right now as, as the Holy Bible. Now you say, well, Paul didn't walk with Jesus. Paul is a special case. Jesus appears to Paul after his ascension. Paul is, by his own admission, one untimely born. And so Paul becomes an apostle by special revelation from Jesus Christ himself. Now you say, well, anybody can say that. That is an important question to ask. Anybody can say, Jesus came, he spoke to me, and this is what he said. That's why it was important for Paul to go back to the apostles who, worked, who walked with Jesus, who ministered alongside of him, and say, Jesus appeared to me, this is what happened. This is what he told me. Does this align with what he told you? And they said, yes. 
that was Jesus that appeared to you. So he's, he's, not, he's not just creating his own revelation. He's proving that he received the same revelation as the other apostles. So in this letter, he's saying, guys, it's me, it's Paul. I'm the apostle of the Lord Jesus. I'm the one whom the, the Lord Jesus appeared to and commissioned to take the gospel to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. Because of that, we have confidence this is a reliable record of God's word. Let's look at a couple of other scriptures. These won't be on the slides behind me, but you can jot down the references. It would be good to look at these throughout the week. The first one is 2 Peter chapter 1. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. If you'll bear with me the next few minutes here, several minutes I'm going to read a decent amount of Scripture, but because I I want to make this point convincingly if possible. Peter, who was one of those who walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry, says this, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses Of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you would do well to pay attention to it. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, above all you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying here. He's, he's referring back to something that, that maybe doesn't ring, ring some bells for you. So, so just to be clear, what Peter is referring to in the first half of that passage is he's, talking, he's referring back to when Jesus took three of his closest disciples up onto a mountain and he was what the Bible describes as transfigured before them. That means that his normal human appearance was changed into something far more glorious. That's what it meant to be transfigured, to have his, his figure changed. And, at, and Peter says, we saw this with our own eyes. Again, not just one, but three of them saw this with their own eyes. Why do I emphasize that? Because people see weird things. People, our minds play tricks on us. The human brain is incredibly powerful that's why, that's why we have things like mental illness. And, you, and it would be easy to write this off and just say, yeah, man, Peter, he had some problems. He was always seeing things. But it's far less likely, though not impossible, admittedly, this, this, the argument does not rely solely on this one piece of evidence, but it's far less likely for all three men to see the same thing. And what they saw was real. They are eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus' appearance change. And not only did they see that with their eyes, but with their ears, they heard a voice. And that voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
they heard testimony from God the Father himself saying, this Jesus that you are following, he is my son. So they saw his glory. They heard the voice of the Father. Peter says, basically Peter saying, you know, that really convinced me. That, that really made a believer out of me. But I know you weren't there. And I, and I know the tendency, uh, a healthy tendency, to be skeptical of such things. And so he says in verse 19, we also have, so he's not relying solely on his experience for his argument. He says, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. What he's saying here is we have the entire Old Testament and now we have this new revelation that came through Jesus' ministry and now through the apostles. And all of these things just keep being confirmed and confirmed and confirmed that the scriptures are passing the test. The scriptures are being validated by all that is happening. How could this be? How could somebody, hundreds, and, and in some cases, a couple of thousand years earlier, write down something prophetic that would become true in Jesus' life, Peter tells us, he says, because no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Christians for the last 2,000 years have held firmly to the idea that that Holy Bible, that those 66 books of Old Testament and New Testament are inspired by God himself. They are God-breathed. They come from him. That's why we call it his word. This is God's self-revelation. He used human authors. The Bible says the Spirit carried them along. And sometimes that, that came through the apostles writing letters to the church. Sometimes it came through through people of old sitting down to record historical events. But in a variety of ways, the Holy Spirit, alongside of and, and, and through, I should say, the human authors recorded the inspired word of God. This is a reliable record of God's word. That's the case I'm trying to make. Peter would say a little bit later in that letter in 2 Peter, you can write down this reference as well, chapter 3. If we look at chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, he says, Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. Paul and Peter are contemporaries. They're ministering and writing at the same time. They know each other well. They are interacting with each other in some of their writings. Specifically here, we see Peter is now referencing Paul's writing. And he says, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him, he speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. Peter is saying in some of Paul's letters, he says things that are difficult to understand. That should be comforting to us. If Peter 
acknowledge that some of Paul's writing was difficult to understand, we should not be surprised and we should not be discouraged when we're reading Paul's letters and say, that's difficult. I don't know if I understand that. I'm not, I'm not sure I, I, I can get my head around that. Some of, some of the things he writes are hard to understand. And then he says the untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. So the apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and who saw Jesus transfigured, who heard the Father from heaven, and who witnessed many other things. That's just one of the things that Peter points back to that was convincing to him. But Peter, who, who is one of the, the leaders in the early church, says, Paul's letters, sometimes they're hard to understand, and some people like to twist them, but don't they do that with the rest of Scripture too? What is he doing? He's affirming that God is revealing himself through Paul's letters and that these are Scripture. He's affirming that. I say all that to say, and there's much more that we could go into, but I don't, this whole sermon is not about this one point. I say all that just to say the Bible is a reliable record of God's word. There's ample evidence to, to justify the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. There's plenty of reasons to believe that that Bible that you hold, and that that Bible that you have unthinkable access to. I mean, no time in human history have, have people had the kind of access to the word of God that we do. Many of you brought, brought the Scriptures up on your phone that's incredible. That, that Bible is a reliable record of God's word. This is what God wants us to know. This is how he has revealed himself. Okay, so now we move on. The second point that you see on the handout is this. The Bible calls us to radical living. If if it's true that the Bible is a reliable record of God's word, then we ought to treat it with reverence and respect. We shouldn't come to the Bible looking to pick it apart as a skeptic. We should come to the Bible in humility and saying, I will submit my, this Bible has an authority over me. This Bible has an authority over the church. Therefore, I will submit myself to it. I'm not calling you to blind submission I'm not calling you to, to submit yourself to something that you, you have not examined and been convinced of its truth. But if you have been convinced, as Peter was, as Paul was, as, as I have been, and as billions of other Christians have been, that this is the inspired word of God, then we come to it and we say, this, this word has an authority over me. And what we find in the, in the Bible is that the Bible calls us to radical living. We go back to the beginning of our passage for today. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, and perhaps this is one of those things that Peter had in mind when he said, you know, some of Paul's writings are difficult to understand. Maybe not. We don't know. He doesn't specify. But in verse 14, we find these words. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed, yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 
you know, maybe this isn't difficult to understand. It's perhaps it's the difficulty and comes in practicing it. The difficulty comes in discerning exactly what this should look like in our 21st century church lives. How should we practice this? How do we honor these scriptures? But, but before we get into that, can we just acknowledge that what we have just been instructed is radical? Can we acknowledge that, that when we come to the Bible and, and we read what the Bible asks of us, it is a radical command that what we are called to is, is not just to live life like everybody else and sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on our lives or to sprinkle a little bit of Bible on our lives, but what we are called to is to completely overturn the way most of us would naturally or even perhaps prefer to live. The Bible calls us to make serious and significant changes in how we live our lives. And that's good. It's hard, but it's good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Well, I thought the Bible was about removing our shame. I thought the gospel came to take away our shame. It did. This is a specific kind of shame, if you will. What we have to understand is that Paul lived in and wrote in a Middle Eastern culture that is driven by this honor-shame mentality that's still true today. That's something that's very foreign to, well, it's very foreign to some of us. <laughs> For many of us in our sort of American individualistic culture uh, where we're encouraged to go against the flow and to be whoever we want to be and all that, this doesn't make a lot of sense. But in a lot of the world, that kind of mentality is, is very much discouraged. And if you begin to stand out, that's, that brings shame upon you and upon your tribe, your people, your family. And so there's a lot of social pressure to bring honor to your family and to your community and to not shame them. I don't think we have that by and large here in America. <laughs> I, I think we live in a radically different culture. But in that culture, there was a, they had a tool for, they had a motivation for acting in a certain way. And so Paul employs that culture. He uses that culture to promote godliness. He says, if you, if, if there are people who aren't willing to, if there are people who are saying they're Christians, first and foremost, this is written to Christians. This is not to be applied to people outside of the body of Christ. But if you are going to name the name of Christ and say you're part of this body, you're part of the church, then, then we expect you to embrace this call to radical living. And for those who, who won't do that, Paul employs the tool of his culture, and says, don't associate with them. Allow them to be ashamed. 
allow them to experience that societal pressure. That's difficult for us, right? It's difficult for me. Maybe not all of us feel that, but I do. But, but where Paul takes a radically different approach to this is found in the next sentence. Because in that culture, shame was almost, and, and still would be today, almost permanent. If you, if you dishonored your family, if you dishonored your heritage, you very likely were permanently cut off and you were treated as an enemy. We see this today in places, many places of the world where people are converting to Christ and their family and their, and their community completely disowns them and they're not welcome back in. Where, where the gospel is different is that although Paul employs the, the honor-shame culture, he says in verse 15, yet don't do this like everybody else Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This, what we, this is what we often call church discipline. Church discipline is the practice of warning a brother or sister that they are living so out of step with what the gospel calls us to, that they are in spiritual danger. Let me clarify that. All of us sin. All of us stumble and fall. And all of us fail miserably to live up to the gospel lifestyle that we are called to. And for that, there's, there's grace. You know, you catch, you catch a brother or sister just like, I don't know, gossiping or really upset about somebody so much so that they're saying like unchristian things or whatever, you know, you, you might say, hey, hey, you know, I understand you're upset, but we can't, we can't go there. But you don't throw them out of the church, right? One of our core values, uh, one of our four core values is that we're about grace-based daily discipleship. The daily discipleship part is that, that we believe that Christians aren't just called to go to church together on Sundays or to, to ascribe to a certain view about God, but that we are called to be daily followers of Jesus. But we say grace-based daily discipleship because we want to be a very gracious people towards one another, acknowledging that we don't do this, we don't do this very well, we don't, and we certainly don't do this perfectly. So we might hold each other accountable, or we might even just overlook a lot of things. But there comes a point... In, in your journey of walking away from the standard of the gospel and towards sin, that you're now becoming spiritually endangered. And when that happens, the Bible is clear that we are to, to protect one another and that we are to serve one another by saying, hey, you're being inconsistent with the gospel. You're living in willful rebellion. You are living, you are living, you are choosing a, a sin or a sinful lifestyle over the gospel. If you continue to do that, you're saying you're no longer a part of the Christian community. That's a hard thing to do. And historically, in the churches that I've been a part of, we've reserved that sort of church discipline. For very extreme cases, maybe 
maybe a, Christ, a member of a Christian couple is, is committing adultery and it's not a, it's not a, a, a one-time, oh, I, I slipped up and we need restoration. It's a, no, I'm pursuing this person. And we as a church have had to say, that's not consistent with, with who we are and what the Bible calls us to. If you continue down that path, we have no choice but to say, you're no longer a member here. You're no longer, you're making the choice to leave the body of Christ. Paul says to do something very similar to that, but, but he's careful to say, yet don't treat that person as an enemy. They are not your enemy. The goal of church discipline is always to save the person in sin. The goal, the goal of church discipline is always to bring them back to the body of Christ. The goal is to restore them to fellowship with Christ and with the body of believers because that's where we are safe and that's where we are living the lives that God calls us to. But do you see how hard this is? you see the, the difficulty of what we're being called to? Let me give you some scriptures, though, to think this through. Hebrews chapter 12. Again, this one, just jot down the reference because it won't be on the screen. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, starting in verse 3, and if you want to jot down the reference, I'm going to go from 3 to 11. Starting in verse 3, it says, For we consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so, so that you won't grow weary and give up. He's speaking of Jesus, of course. In verse 4, the author says, In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take, take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit." so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see the purpose of discipline? You see the value of discipline? The Lord disciplines his children. He disciplines the ones that he loves. What father, or I can speak to the mothers as well, what father or mother does not discipline their children? If you don't discipline your children, you are a terrible parent. You cannot give them everything that they want. You cannot let them do, you know, this idea that we, that, that our heart is the king and whatever our heart desires is good is, is proven to be so ridiculous. If you just look at toddlers, toddlers want to do the most ridiculous things. 99% of what they want to do will hurt them, will, will be bad for them. That's where parents come in, and that's where discipline comes in. No, we're not going to do that. 
we're going to go back over here and we're going to do what we were doing. And, and let me tell you, because we've, we've, we've brought two toddlers into our home recently. That's a full-time job. It's an exhausting full-time job. They never stop trying to do the wrong things. And so it is with many of us. We want something that's bad for us. We want something outside of what God has, has set up for us. And we need to be disciplined. We need to be disciplined, one, by the Lord, and two, by his body. We need each other. We need to have close friends that love us enough to tell us when we're doing wrong. We need to have godly leaders who love us enough to say, you can't do that. That's not the right thing to do. We need the discipline of the Lord. Now, the problem is, is it's not pleasant. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's beautiful, isn't it? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. If you want to experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness in the latter part of your life, you need to humble yourself and submit yourself to discipline now. It's the only way you're going to get it. There's no magic formula that if you resist discipline and you resist accountability among friends, and if you resist the leadership of the people that God has placed over you, there's, there's no way later on to catch up to receive that peaceful fruit of righteousness. These are the means that God has ordained. This is the way that God brings that peaceful fruit into our lives. And I would say now, I wouldn't say now more than ever, because this was, in, in the first century, the Thessalonians needed this probably more than we need this. But now more than any other time in my life, as culture continues to wage war against the gospel, we need this type of humility now more than we have at any point in our lives. Because if we resist the discipline of the Lord, that means to, to persist in separating ourselves from the body of Christ, the church, and to separate ourselves from the protection of of the body of Christ is to open ourselves to be devoured by a world that hates the gospel. Casual Christians, casual Christians, those who, those who resist passages like this, those who resist the discipline of being a part of the body of Christ, those who resist relationships of accountability, those who are just like, you know what, I, I believe most of that stuff, and I kind of like going to church. It makes me feel good. It's not a bad thing, and not a bad way to start my week. Or That sort of casual Christian is getting devoured by our culture. Those who are not, who, who are not completely, who, who have not committed themselves to the truth of Scripture and to life within the body of Christ being destroyed. It is a vicious world to be in right now. 
Because this world hates the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be casual about your faith, if you're going to resist this call to radical living, that is the least safe place to be. It's not safe to be on the fence. It's like positioning yourself between two warring armies. Nobody goes to the front lines of a battle and says, you know what, I really like both sides. I'm not, I, I, I like you and I, and I like you. I'm going to just try to stay in the middle and just walks in between these two fighting armies. And it's just as unsafe to be a casual Christian today. It's just as unsafe to say, you know what, I like Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the church. Or, you know, I like a lot of what the Bible says, but I'm not going to submit myself to, to difficult things like church discipline. That type of Christianity will not survive. And in a sense, I thank God because it's not true Christianity. For too long, people have believed sort of a false gospel and had this sense of security as if they were in the body of Christ and they weren't. What's going on today is clarifying what it means to be a Christian. I heard a story one time, and it may or may not be true. It really doesn't matter. But in a, in a country where Christians were being heavily persecuted, I heard a story about these masked gunmen who went into a church service and, they, and, they, and they, they told everybody, if you're not ready to die for Jesus, then, then you can leave right now. But if you're ready to die for Jesus, then stay here and keep worshiping or something like that. And so all the casual Christians who weren't ready to die left, and then the gunmen took their masks off, and they said, okay, now we can worship. <laughs> we, we need to clarify what it means to be a part of the body. And that means to submit ourselves to Scripture, to submit ourselves to accountability, to submit ourselves to living a radical life for Christ. Jesus says in Mark 8, verse 34, it says, Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in, glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." The Bible calls us to radical living. And finally, I want to make this third point, and I'll make this one much quicker. The third point on the handout is this. The Bible is refreshment for faithful followers. The Bible is refreshment for faithful followers. Paul having written now two letters to the church in Thessalonica, a church that is facing intense persecution, a church that is facing the temptation to sort of be on the fence because if you identify as a Christian, you're going to get attacked. And so 
there was, I'm sure, a temptation for many to sort of hide and, and, and sort of blend in with the culture. Um, but, but Paul makes it clear that won't work. You can't live that way. You, you, you just need to make the commitment to be a part of the body of Christ. Having written two letters now where he's exhorting them to, to live a radical life, to do the hard things, this is how he ends his letter. Verse 16, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You know, the Bible is not just a reliable record of God's word. And the Bible not only calls us to radical living, but at the end of the day, the Bible is refreshing. For those of us who are, for those of us who are saying, I'm all in. I know I'm not going to do it perfectly. I know I'm going to need a ton of grace, but, but I'm in. Count me as part of the body of believers. I'm part of Christ's body. I'm living for him. I'm not going to be on the fence. I'm not going to walk down the middle. I know where my loyalty lies. For those faithful followers, the Bible is abundant refreshment. The Bible is life. It is encouraging. It is uplifting. It is good news. For those who faithfully follow, there's peace and grace for this difficult journey. He will not leave his people alone in this world. He walks with us and he pours his peace and his grace upon us. That's why Paul says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. If you commit yourself to living this radical life and following Christ, you will experience Jesus giving you peace. It will happen. How will you know it has happened? You'll be like, that's from Jesus. That peace could only come from Jesus because my circumstances couldn't be the source of this peace because my circumstances are trying. The people around me are, are, are not sufficient to give me this kind of peace. This peace must be from the Lord himself. And that's what Paul prays for. May he give you that peace. May he be with you. May his grace be with you. That is an incredible blessing for Paul to say, may you experience the peace of Jesus. May you experience the grace of your Savior. May you experience the comfort of being in him. That's what the Bible provides. It's refreshment. So those of us who are in the battle, those of us who have committed to the gospel, we come to the Bible and we find refreshment. We find life. If you're not hungering for the Bible, it might be because you're not in the battle. It might be because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Because the Bible is refreshment for Faithful followers. So how do I want to apply this today? I want to invite the worship team, first of all, to come up and get ready. Because today we're going to take communion. 
And what does all of this have to do with communion? Well, believe it or not, it has a lot to do with communion. Because communion is it's a couple of things. One, it's us remembering what Jesus has done for us. It's us remembering that he, he, he allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled for our salvation. That's one thing that communion is. It's remembering what Jesus did on our behalf. But the other thing that communion is, is it's us identifying with the church. Communion is a way of saying, I belong to a body, the body of Jesus, which is the church. The Bible is clear that Jesus' body is made up of the individual members who have trusted in him for salvation and proclaim him as Lord. So communion is a way of saying, yes, I remember what Jesus did, and also I am part of this body. I'm in. I accept this call to radical living. I accept this call to accountability to my brothers and sisters. I accept this call to follow godly leadership. I accept this call to be a part of something bigger and more significant than myself. It's communion. It's that common union. It's it's us being united together as one body of Christ. 